You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. As I think about you this morning and look into your eyes, I think about the reality of relationships. Uh, Relationships inevitably come with promises. From something as basic as, I promise to meet you later tonight for dinner at a certain time at a certain place, to I promise to continue this relationship and not to leave you. Relationships, for them to be any kind of meaningful way, are built on promises. But the relationship seemingly is only as strong as the promises that are made, that the promises are kept. And quite honestly, we're used to hearing in these days of old promises that honestly we suspect will not be kept. We find ourselves in our country here in the United States in another political cycle where candidates from different parties make all kinds of promises that if we put our confidence in them by putting our vote in them, they will fulfill the promise that they make. And I have to tell you, not being cynical or skeptical, but I think just being historically honest, some of these promises are just absolutely outlandish. I mean, they sort of just promise us the world as to what they will provide for us if we but only will put our confidence in them by putting them in office. And honestly, it's like, wow, what has everybody else been doing before you would potentially have arrived? Perhaps overstepping what they state that they can promise because, after all, they are aware of the other branches of government who simply can be a check and balance and how much you can actually get done if those other branches of government are not in agreement. So nevertheless, we come into a season of promises made because of relationships, but they're not always promises kept. But you don't have to look to politics to see how relationships are filled with promises. Promises where you make a pledge to one another and you promise to keep it. I mean, just think about on an interpersonal level when friends, even of childlike age, make promises and they promise to do something together, to be somewhere together. They often say things like, I pinky promise. And somehow, even by saying that phrase, you're like, the pinky is powerful, apparently. If you apparently loop your pinkies around each other, you will have made a great commitment to one another. And so the significance of what that looks like, but it's not just a picky promise. Even men and women in the context of marriage put on wedding bands. And those wedding bands, those small pieces of jewelry, metal or gold or uh, titanium or silicone, whatever the band of choice is, those bands indicate commitments, commitments that are going to be made and commitments that are therefore going to be kept. It's not just pinky promises and wedding rings. It's also blood oaths and tattoos. We have matching tattoos of a commitment we have to each other. I remember for a time in college when I almost pledged a fraternity. I say almost because in God's providence, I turn left when otherwise it's about to go right. And in being a part of that fraternity, it would have come expectantly with a pledge that you would make and a brand that you would receive. I thankfully, to my wife's gladness, do not have that brand today. But you know who also makes promises besides politicians and best friends? God. God makes promises. 
But the interesting thing about God is unlike best friends and politicians who, depending on the nature of the relationship, the strength of the relationship, to his relationship, you're not quite sure if you can trust that promise. Unlike those relationships, when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. You might not always be able to see it, and you might not get it immediately, but he always keeps it. Every promise God makes, he keeps. And do you know how God ultimately makes a promise to you? For those of you who are in Christ, who by faith alone in Christ alone have acknowledged your rejection of him, and yet his salvation of you through the sacrifice and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, do you, do you know what he does to make a promise to you of the eternal life to come? He gives you himself. The third member of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, is given to you as a pledge of your inheritance in Christ. And he does not take it away. Our purpose is this morning, by title, the Holy Spirit, your divine roommate, we come to the point of Galatians regarding the book, or regarding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now let me just sort of tell you where we're going. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the divine Godhead who works in the lives of Christians to save them, mature them, and secure them for eternal life. That is the summary of the next following minutes we're going to be together is in that statement right there. That is who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does in Christians' lives. Now, for those of you who are perhaps coming for the first time, or maybe this is your second time, to give you a little bit of orientation as to where we are and what's going on at Grace Church. It is our practice at Grace Church most consistently to go through the, the teaching of Scripture. turns out we think nobody has a better word for us than God himself, and so we want to hear what God's word says. And in this case, we're in the book of Galatians. Now, we've just recently completed, after 25 weeks, 25 Sundays together, the entire book of Galatians, all six chapters, but we're having a bit of a a continued celebration, if you will, an after party, we've called it, the, the Galatians after party. You know, you've had the main event, but there's still more to enjoy together. And so last week, we took a look at the doctrine, the, the teaching, rather, of false teaching and how we need to be aware of that, especially since Galatians give so much attention to that. Well, we're doing the same thing today, but with a different topic, and that is the topic of the Holy Spirit. And depending on your background, if you have no religious education, no Christian exposure, or maybe varied experience and exposure, you could be all over the map in the room this morning as to what is and who is and what does the Holy Spirit actually do. And so we want to bring the Word of God to bear in this conversation. In summary, I'll say this about the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, the third person of the Trinity. He is omnipresent, as we read in Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you are there. The Holy Spirit knows us. He can be grieved. He intercedes for us. He makes decisions according to his will. The Holy Spirit truly can function as the comforter, as the counselor, and the convictor that Jesus promised that he would be. We're coming into the book of Galatians in just a minute, but let me be clear about this. The Holy Spirit has been spoken of hundreds of times in the Old Testament and continually throughout the New Testament. The Holy Spirit shared fully in the eternal decrees, including the decision to create human beings in the image, 
Hence, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Let us make man in our image. The Holy Spirit worked in the initial creation, bringing cosmos out of chaos, Genesis chapter 1 as well. The Holy Spirit guided the nation of Israel and gave insight in the Old Testament through the prophets. The Holy Spirit was sent to Nazareth to overshadow the Virgin Mary, enabling her to give birth to the Messiah apart from the agency of a human father. The Holy Spirit was sent upon Christ at his baptism, giving visible manifestation and audible confirmation of his messianic destiny. The Holy Spirit was sent to the early church on the day of Pentecost, introducing a new era, a new time in redemptive history. Now, if I may, let me, if I can, reach back into last week's lesson on false teaching and grab a hold of this week's, this week's lesson on, false, on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And let me actually bring these together to give clarity on something I want to make sure that everybody has clarity on this morning when it comes to the teaching from the Bible of the Holy Spirit. Modalism, a term not familiar to your ears perhaps, is a false view of the nature of God. It first appeared in the second and third centuries, two to three hundred years after the resurrection of Christ. A modalist view views God as one person instead of three persons and believes that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are simply different modes or forms of the same person. According to modalism, God sort of shows up with three different manifestations. To put this in maybe a modern-day vernacular, it's like saying it like this. God shows up occasionally in front of the curtain of heaven as Father. He then goes back behind the curtain. He comes back out and He appears as the Son. And He goes back behind the curtain. He comes back out and appears as the Spirit. According to modalism, God has variously manifested himself in these different ways, primarily as the Father in the Old Testament, primarily as the Son from Jesus' conception to his ascension, and primarily as the Holy Spirit from Jesus' ascension into heaven. This first showed up in 190 AD, just about 200 years after Jesus' resurrection, and was declared then and continually since then for the last 1,800 years as heresy. Sadly, this 1,800-year-old 18 heresy did not die. It is still around today, and you can find it in oneness Pentecostalism. Not simply Pentecostalism. This is a specific important term, oneness Pentecostalism. It's just modalism by a different name. In oneness theology, which is anti-Trinitarian, there are no distinctions among the persons of the Godhead. Jesus is God, but He's also the Father. He's also the Spirit and slight deviation. Only difference is they'll say that He'll show up in different modes at the same time. But this is not what Scripture teaches. Think of Jesus' baptism. There is Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, with God the Father speaking, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, while at the same time the Spirit is descending upon Him. So we think about the Trinity thinking of the Holy Spirit, to now talk about the Trinity, let me say this. The Bible presents God as one God, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, but then speaks of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
Think of Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How are these to be harmonized together? It's inconceivable to the human mind fully, but nevertheless, Scripture is plain. God exists in three co-eternal, co-equal persons. Jesus prayed to his Father, Luke 22. He now sits at the right hand of his Father, Hebrews 1. And the Father and the Son sent the Spirit into the world, John 14. Thankfully, we're not left to kind of make this up on our own and to really learn from our older brothers and sisters in the faith and church history, let me direct your attention to the screen to what's known as the Athanasian Creed. This is not all of the creed. This is a paragraph from the creed. But the creed was written in church history to react to the fact that people were teaching false teachings about Christ in particular and the Trinity and, and, and overall. And so let me read this paragraph to you. The Athanasian Creed says that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. All of that to now get us to Galatians. If you're not there already, turn to Galatians chapter 3. To be clear, I do not have the time and you do not have the availability for me to teach in one sitting all that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. But now having given us a brief orientation as to the third member of the Triune Godhead and who the Trinity is overall, let's get to what we're referring to here in Galatians. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 15 times in Galatians. You'll see this just to start us off in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. After talking about who has bewitched them, who has tricked them in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Follow along with me, if you would, with me in verses 2 and 3. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He goes on again in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Jump down to verse 14 of chapter 3, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. These are simply the first four of 15 references that continue to run from chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. Let me, if I can, for the purposes of our time together, put them all together in sort of succinct fashion with, the, with this intention. I want to teach us three lessons about the Holy Spirit from Galatians with six implications. Stay with me. These are important, and they're important not simply because of what you're going to learn, but how you're going to live in light of what you learn. Lesson number one, you became a Christian because of the Holy Spirit. You became a Christian because of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at chapter four. The significance here, just to give us context, as he talks about their significance, the reality of Christ's work, Galatians, excuse me, I said, yeah, Galatians chapter four, Look at verse 29. He says, Just at the time he who was born according to the flesh 
persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What's he talking about here? He's talking about a phrase of the reality of what continually is the case throughout Scripture, which is that the work of God in a person's life to understand the gospel and respond to the gospel is not, hear me, is not primarily and entirely based upon either the persuasiveness of the communicator or the intelligence of the listener. It's based on the work of the Holy Spirit. Why is this so significant? Well, because if you go back to the significance of what it says here, the reality of how God does a work in people's lives, the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us, gives us life, takes out our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh in order that we not only see our true sinful condition, but also to offer forgiveness through faith in Christ. You're like, who believes this besides you and Paul, Eric? Um, all right, I'll pre- receive that challenge. Let's go to John. John chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you can simply listen as I read it to you. If you are familiar with it, it's the fourth gospel, a little bit left in your Bibles from the book of Galatians. The apostle John is the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes these teachings of the ministry of Jesus, and he records a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is basically asking the question, saying about Jesus in verse 2 of John chapter 3, we know that you're a teacher, comes from God. No one does these things unless, that you do unless God is with them. Jesus has a question for him. And Jesus basically says, you cannot see these things or understand these things, verse 3, unless one is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is understandably quite confused. He's, verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5 of John chapter 3, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, meaning you have to literally be born of the water, referring to the natural birth, and the Spirit, the new birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And here's how he knows. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with them, everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's he talking about? In brief fashion, here's what he's saying. Jesus is like, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Nicodemus is like, uh, I got questions. How am I supposed to like, you know, go back to my mom and like, hey, we got to do a do-over. How do I do that? And Jesus is like, no, no, you're not understanding. This is not being born again physically. This is being born spiritually. And he's like, well, how do I do that? He's like, that's a work that the Spirit of God does. And he can perceive the ignorance that Nicodemus is going to have. Like, how do I know that? And he goes, it's like the wind. You don't actually see wind blowing. What do you see with the wind? You see its effects. You see the trees moving. You see the wind, the leaves moving. You don't actually see the wind We'll put that context in the context of what Jesus is talking about. How do you know if somebody is born again? What is the effects of the Spirit of God giving them life? They believe. They cannot believe unless they have been born again, which is why he would later say in John chapter 3, verse 16, arguably the most famous verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that what? Whosoever what? Believes. 
So you are called to believe. And friends, let me just be very clear. Let me just be very undeniably clear. No one is sitting here today who is not a Christian saying, I wish I could become a Christian, but God won't let me be one. There is the appeal from Scripture. There is the, there is the call to repent. There is the reality that if you are not in a saving relationship with God, that God will rightly do the very thing you hope He will do, which is be just. You just didn't hope He'd be just with you. God offers His Son as an escape, as a substitute. And His perfect obedience to God's law, His sacrificial death on the cross, making payment for sin, for all those who would ever believe in him, and resurrecting from the grave three days later that whoever would believe in him would be forgiven of their sins. So here's the question. Do you believe? I call on you to believe. Give your life to Christ. For all of those of you who are Christians, do you know why you believed? It's not because a preacher was that good or your mom was that kind or you were that intelligent or you got caught at the right emotional moment. You believed because God gave life. Ephesians 2 even speaks about this. This is why, two points of application here for you, this is why you pray to God while you evangelize your family and friends. I mean, after all, why would you pray otherwise? If God has no work in saving sinners, what would you simply say to God? God, uh, actually, never mind, God. You did everything you can do. It's up to me and it's up to them now. I guess you're going to sit this one out. And this is also why you praise God, while you're thinking about your own testimony as a Christian. So we come to this reality of what the Scripture teaches us, even going back to Galatians chapter 3, the significance of what God did How it is that they believed? As he speaks about this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, so they also believed. But this because of the Spirit. I'm just reminded, if you can turn your Bibles, keep your finger in Galatians chapter 3, but turn your Bibles just a couple pages to the right. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just have fun and see this here for a second. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. You weren't like sick. You weren't like morally wounded. You didn't have like a, no, you were like dead. Verse two, in which you once walked on the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that now work in the sons of disobedience. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the past of our flesh. Like we were a hot mess. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with him, Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The second lesson about the Holy Spirit for Christians in Galatians is not only, number one, you became a Christian because of the Holy Spirit, but number two, you were given the Holy Spirit upon your conversion. Go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. He speaks about how God sent forth his son in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, born of a woman, born under a law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. But then verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of a son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, <laughs> this, this is radical reality. You're not just saved because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are, back to the pledge being made to you, the promise being made to you, you are given the Holy Spirit as a pledge of your inheritance in Christ. In fact, since we're in Ephesians just a minute ago, go to Ephesians to the right again. This time, not chapter 2. Go to chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You can see the triune Godhead, the Trinity, involved in salvation of sinners. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 is God the Father's work in salvation. Verses 6 through 12 is God the Son's work in salvation. But then look at what it says here in verses 13 and 14 of the Spirit's work in salvation. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with what? With the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, this is why God says through his servant Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Think about this. This is a sneak peek of what's to come. I say that. Why? Because in Genesis, before the fall, what did God have with man and man had with God? Perfect fellowship. With no sin present. God dwelt with man. And one day in the future, as we read in the book of Revelations, when God creates a new heaven, a new earth, God will dwell with man in the same likeness as what he once began with all of creation. But in the intermediary time between now and then, he dwells with man by dwelling in man as a pledge of man's inheritance in Christ. It's a sneak peek of what's to come. The reality, though, if we can be honest, is that it's not so easy, right? I wonder how many of you either maybe growing up had your own room as a child, if you had siblings, maybe you still had your own bedroom, or maybe as an adult you moved out, you had your own space, your own apartment. But somewhere along the way, maybe when you went to college or maybe you, you know, rank gets so high here in Miami, you're like, dude, I can't afford to live on my own anymore, I need a roommate. And you get a roommate. And you got this roommate, you had kind of had your ways of living and the things that you did, your kind of ways of cooking food and you get to the dishes later. You got this new roommate and this roommate honestly is encouraging but also like overwhelming because like, you know, 
Their alarm goes off at 5 o'clock in the morning. They never hit snooze. They're like getting up and they're doing like power walks. You know, they like read their Bibles. You hear the coffee maker going. Meanwhile, you're like on your 17th cycle of the snooze button. They're up. They make breakfast. They greet you like they're just super happy. And you're like, I would like to talk to you this afternoon. Not until then. And they seemingly are like always winning at life, like, right? Like, you know, like they're disciplined, they're responsible, they seemingly are like kind, and you're like, dude, I really like you, but I'm also like a little put off by you because honestly, I just feel like everything you do is awesome. And I liked it when it was just myself. Like, you pick up your room, you always wash it. I've never come home from work and found the dishes in the sink. It's already done. And sometimes when you've made food, you've got some extra food for me. And I'm like, I didn't even give you money to pay for that food, let alone take the time to cook it, and yet you're feeding me. What is up with you? That new roommate that you kind of like and you're not sure you like. That's what happens when a Christian gets the Holy Spirit. You get a new roommate living inside of you, and the old man is not too happy about it. The old man is like, I did not know we're getting into this arrangement. I mean, before I could slander and not feel convicted, before I could kind of give myself over to the lusts of my flesh, and as long as it wasn't as bad as other friends of mine, I could tell myself it's okay, or as long as I was sort of kind the next day, or I tried harder, or I just sort of did a little bit less, or I drank a little bit less, or I didn't do as much, but I think I'm okay. But, but now the Holy Spirit's inside of me, and this certainly new spiritual roommate, this like new person inside of me, it's better than I've ever imagined. They comfort me when I'm down. They convict me and correct me when I need to be corrected. They show me truth that I otherwise would not understand. And my old man hates it, but my new man loves it. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You get a roommate, and not just any roommate, not just a model. You get the third member of the Godhead that, according to Ephesians, raised Christ from the dead. That means you and I actually have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to say no to sin. Sin's presence is not removed from us. Its penalty is, and its power is, thanks to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wants the Galatians to know this. He wants the Galatians to understand that the Holy Spirit guides us, supports us, comforts us, convicts us, strengthens us in Christ. That the Holy Spirit helps us to pray and even prays for us. He grows us in Christ's likeness. He gives us specific gifts to use in order that we would help build up the body of Christ, other members of the body. That we would be serving in our churches. He draws us closer to God the Father and God the Son. He also draws us closer to each other. He brings glory to Christ as he makes Christ more fully known in our hearts. His ministry, as Jesus says himself, is to bring attention to Jesus. To be clear, the Holy Spirit is not a blessing from God. The Holy Spirit is God. Takes us to our third lesson. You became a Christian because of the Holy Spirit. You were given the Holy Spirit upon conversion. Third lesson, you mature as a Christian because of the Holy Spirit. You mature as a Christian because of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Notice that word want. That's that new desire there. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. He goes on to describe the works of the flesh in verse 19. But look at what he says in verse 22. It's not the fruit of your Christian life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. God's producing this in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. The reality here is that you mature as a Christian not because you're trying hard enough, you're listening well enough, you're pledging yourself more enough. It's that the Spirit of God is producing in you what He began in you. You are sanctified. You are matured because of that. I mean, think of it like this. There are power plants around Miami-Dade and Broward County. These power plants are generating an overwhelming amount of electricity. That overwhelming amount of electricity, if it was to go directly from that plant to your house, your house would be fried. But that power generation goes through a series of substations comes in your neighborhood and goes to a transformer that's probably in some pole in your neighborhood. And it goes from that pole to your house. And then it goes into your house and it goes through a, a breaker box that sort of controls the amount of currents. And then it comes into your outlet at 110 volts. Now at the power plant, it's not 110 volts. It's a lot more. But by the time it gets to your house, it's 110 volts. And interestingly, even at your house, with different things you plug into the outlets, sometimes even the devices you have, computers, for example, have a little transformer box attached to the cable. Why? Because that device it's connected to can't handle 110 volts. It'll get fried. That transformer takes that power and delivers it according to what is needed. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit is like for Christians. The reality is the fullness of God and all of his glory and all of his instruction and all of his divineness and all of his reality of his work and his promise, you and I couldn't handle all of that at once. So the Holy Spirit takes his word and by the mystery of his work works in your life differently. In fact, I'll prove it. If I was to ask 10 of you when you walk out of this building into that lobby and I asked you, what did you take away from this sermon? Even just asked you, what did you remember from this sermon? Let alone what did you take away? I guarantee you, probably at least eight, if not all ten of you have a different answer. Is it because I'm that bad of a communicator? You're that bad of a listener? It's because the Holy Spirit is taking his word, working into the crevices of your life, and you have takeaways according to his word, that God wants you to listen to, to think about. For some of you, the takeaway is, do I trust Christ? Is he my savior? For others of you, it's to be reminded, I'm not alone. And on and on it goes. God loves you and gives you himself. And how profoundly encouraging that is that you're not left to be somehow saved by grace through faith, but somehow matured and sanctified. Sanctified means made holy by your works. I'll prove it. 
Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, he says, work out your salvation, not work for, work out your salvation, fear and trembling. But then he says in verse 13, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let me just ask you this question, Christian. Have you ever had a good godly desire? Like, you know, like I want to read my Bible. I want to tell this person about Jesus. I want to forgive this person. I really want to uh, say no to the lust of my flesh. I really want to be more patient. I really want to just sort of appreciate what I have in Christ and be reminded of him. Any of that ever applied to any of you? The answer, of course, is yes. You can thank the Holy Spirit for that. Because those are not instinctively natural to your flesh nor to mine. That's not of the man. That's of God and what he's producing in us. Being a Christian isn't about being a better person. It's about being a new person. And God has made you a new person and is bringing that to fruition in how you live accordingly. He's declared you righteous and you're progressively being made in your actions and thinking and speaking righteous. Six implications. Don't panic. You're like, it took you that long to get through three. Now you want to go through six? It'll be brief. Number one, you don't have to have some extra spiritual act to have confidence God the Spirit is with you. Just want to say that again. You don't have to have some extra spiritual act to have confidence God the Spirit is with you. There has been a distortion at best a gross misinterpretation and application at, wor at worst, proof texting out of context some verses from, say, in the book of Acts to teach some Christians today that unless you do some type of miraculous work, speaking in tongues, and so much as it defines what tongues are, and or some other type of ecstatic experience, that you cannot have confidence the Spirit of God's with you. Paul doesn't believe that. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. That's a misrepresentation of Scripture. And can be why so often Christians struggle today with assurance of salvation. Because they've wrongly put their assurance in what they've got to do or yet have not yet done and not in the work that God has already done for them in Christ, provided by and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The most basic indication of our adoption is that we have a new form of address for God. Again, go back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Like you became a Christian, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I just want to say, for those of you who are on this constant treadmill of super spirituality, get off the treadmill and rest in Christ by the work of the spirit. You're good. You're adopted. Enjoy. Relax. God called you. God saved you. God has sealed you. You're his. Second, your hope is in God to change the hearts of sinners to see and follow Christ. Your hope is in God to change the hearts of sinners to see and to follow Christ. Oh, how this lets us off the just treadmill of guilt. If only I would have, if only I could have, if only I should have, so-and-so would have given their life to Christ by now. Friends, God certainly calls us to be faithful ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5. That's a privilege of ours, an opportunity, a responsibility. But no one is in hell because we somehow failed them, and no one's in heaven because we somehow won them. It's Christ 
through the work of the Spirit. Christ crucified, that message of the gospel is being proclaimed and the Spirit is ministering it. He uses us as his mouthpieces, but he accomplishes the work. As the evangelist D.L. Moody said, there is not a better evangelist in the world than the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Number three, you can resist the guidance of the Holy Spirit in your life, but it will come at a cost. You can resist the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but it will come at a cost. He speaks about this in Galatians chapter 6, the significance of the reality of this, sowing to the Spirit and reaping eternal life versus sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption. There are, there are consequences. Paul even says uh, to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Like, how would I grieve the Holy Spirit? Am I like making the Holy Spirit cry? What does it even mean? It means when you have the clear revelation of God's Word, the clear prompting by God's Spirit to do the right thing and you choose not to, that grieves the Holy Spirit. It's not what He has led you to do. It's not the example that Christ has set for you. It's not what He has set you free to go do. He says in Galatians chapter 5 that through love serve one another. Number four, you are related to and connected with every Christian in the world. How cool is that? I mean, just think about the significance of what this means as we think through what it means to be in Christ together. The context here in Galatians is they want to know who's with Abraham and who's not. And the Jewish teachers are saying, hey, unless you're circumcised, you're not with Abraham. And Paul shows up and says, that's nonsense. If your faith is in Christ, you're all in Abraham. You're all related. Check this out. Do you know that you have more in common with people in Nigeria that you've never met, that some of you do not look like, than to do the very family that you live with today? Straight up truth. And you'll spend an eternity in heaven with those people? You are heirs of the promise, God says, in Abraham. The sweetness of that promise, the reality of that. Number five, your life in the Spirit is directly tied to your love for and your obedience to the Word of God. You say, Eric, I want to live a Spirit-filled life. I, I, I want to be able to have these things in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, true of me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Friend, let me just be clear. You don't sit down in the morning on a, on a bench and be like, okay, God, zap me. Give it to me. I want it. I want it. And you're like, oh, I'm starting to feel it. I'm getting warm. Oh, warmer. Oh, that is hot. I am hot for Jesus. I'm loving now. Whatever that thing is you just thought you did, that was you just somehow being misled at best and being goofy at, weird, at worst. That's not how the Spirit of God works. He takes the word of Christ. That's exactly what Jesus said when Jesus would leave, that one would come to guide you into the word of Christ. Friends, if you want to live a Spirit-filled life, open up the word. Taste and see that God is good. Love and enjoy all that he has for you. Six and final you can rest assured that God will accomplish his work in the life of every Christian. You can rest assured that God will accomplish his work in the life of every Christian. It might be lost in you by connection, but just to make it obvious to you, when Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, about these sort of attributes that we wish were true of all of us all the time, love, joy, peace, etc., he describes this as the fruit of the Spirit. 
The Spirit's producing this in us. Now, to be clear, God in His perfect wisdom often produces things in us through trials and difficulties than, than not just through blessing and promotions. Like, think about what true love looks like. Meet an enemy, and you'll find what true love looks like. Think what peace looks like, true peace looks like. Go through hardship, find out what true peace looks like. Now, that does not mean you should pray for hardships. It's a fallen enough world as it is. But the way how God uses things in our life, and I say this because conflict, think of me in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, Paul says. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. Why is this encouraging? Why can you rest assured? For two reasons. Number one, because if you see a Christian who's not as much of a Christian as you think they should be, you know who knows that? God. You know who began the work in them and is doing a work in them? It'll bring that work to completion in them? God. So pray to the Lord for them. Out of love, pray for them. But you know what you can also do? Relate to them because that's just like you. You and I both know you're not as much of a Christian as we, you wish you were. But instead of being in a pile of guilt and shame, you can go back to the reality of the Spirit reminds you Christ died not for most of your sins and the rest you've got to make up for. He died for all of your sins. So that the work of Christ being applied to your credit, that it is finished as a declaration of not just his work, but your need to not do any work, but by faith alone, and that itself being a gift from God, you can rest. Rest assured that God will accomplish his work in you. Friends, I hope this encourages you, and I hope it clarifies for you the truth of the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians. So much more could be said but enough that's been said here to challenge us and direct us to live accordingly. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.